Welcome to Season 2 of The Wiser Podcast. I'm Vivian Wang again, and together with Caroline Coleman, we have 10-plus episodes planned for you this year. Most of these were recorded actually last year while I was still at Emory. I'm now currently at Ohio State doing a minimally invasive surgery fellowship. In the meantime, we are welcoming Dr. Jessica Liu, who is a PGY-3 in the Emory General Surgery Residency, and Razan Faraj, who is an M3 at Emory Medical School. They will start working on episodes that will likely debut in Season 3, and we are so excited to have them on our WISER team. For our first episode of this season, we are excited to have our first guest from outside of the Emory Network, Dr. Rebecca Minter. We also have a guest host on this episode, Dr. Priya Rajdev, who is also a recent graduate from the Emory General Surgery Residency and is currently at Oregon Health Sciences University as a Minimally Invasive Surgery Fellow. Dr. Rajdev was a medical student at Michigan when Dr. Minter was there and states that Dr. Minter was a major inspiration in her career choice. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Wiser Podcast or email newsletters by emailing us at wiserpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for your support, and we hope you enjoy. And welcome back to the Wiser Podcast. I'm Vivian Wang. I'm a chief resident at the Emory General Surgery Residency Program, and I'm here with another chief resident, Priya Rajdev. Hi. And, of course, we are also here with Caroline Coleman, a third-year Emory Medical student, as you guys well know. In this episode of the Wiser Podcast, we are very excited to have our first special guest, Dr. Rebecca Minter, who is a AR Curary professor as well as the chair of the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine. Dr. Minter has been with the University of Wisconsin since 2018. Prior to this, she held successive leadership roles at the University of Michigan and at UT Southwestern, including serving as the chief of hepatopancreatic obiliary division at both institutions, or the HPB division. Her clinical interests lie in pancreatic obiliary and GI surgery, with a particular interest in the management and treatment of benign and neoplastic pancreatic diseases. Dr. Minter's primary research interests include surgical education, and her work is focused on the development of training frameworks, which explicitly define progressive entrustment and the development of autonomy. She's a leader in her clinical field, with several editorial appointments on prominent journals and textbooks, as well as over 100 national presentations and 30 international presentations. All right. Thanks, Priya. Uh, Dr. Minter, how did you get interested in surgery? Um, So, you know, when I entered medical school, I was certain I was going to be a developmental pediatrician. That was my experience in medicine. in San Antonio, I had grown where I had grown up, and through middle school and high school, um, we had a camp called the Children's Association for Maximum Potential, and I had tremendous experience working with children with uh, developmental disabilities, and I thought for sure that's what I wanted to do. And so I did my surgery clerkship first to get it over with because I thought I would hate surgery and that surgeons were terrible human beings and only cared about the technical aspects of what they did, and I absolutely loved it, Um, and much to my surprise, never looked back from there forward. So um, in hindsight, it was a perfect fit, and pediatrics um, was not at all. I decided I would just have some children someday, because taking care of kids who were sick um, and trying to navigate through that was not fun at all, I found, Um, but really, surgery really was a great fit. So you are a master educator. You've obviously won a considerable number of teaching awards during your career. And you were someone I obviously considered a mentor and a teacher um, during medical school. 
So as we transition into our resident and attending roles, what advice do you have for A, how we can be better educators, and B, have you ever found yourself having to refocus or change gears for certain types of learners, and how do you do that effectively? Well, first of all, it's super exciting to, to be here, um, having seen you all grown up now. Uh, it's <laughs> very, very exciting. Um, so I think that um, it's, it's an important thing to be thinking about as you make this transition because it's a really hard transition. As a resident, you're doing the whole case. Now suddenly you're on the left side of the table and you're trying to guide somebody through and you will quickly figure out that um, you had really good assistance um, when you <laughs> were doing the case and suddenly that umbilical hernia repair is incredibly difficult. <laughs> um, part of what we'll talk about tomorrow at Grand Rounds is there absolutely are different types of learners and we all have our own sort of orientation in terms of how we um, like to work um, and there's a really nice framework for that that actually comes out of the business world um, called promotion and prevention um, and I'm for example a very promotion oriented person I'm kind of a go 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 very optimistic don't worry we can fix that I'm married to a very prevention oriented husband <laughs> surgeon um, who this has been very insightful for me to how to navigate my marriage as well. <laughs> um, but he's very much, you know, um, inspired by the cautionary tale. Like, you know, if you do that, the patient could die. And he's like, okay, well, we're going to be careful here. So, but if you don't understand the orientation of the person across from you and you give feedback or try to give motivation to them in the wrong way, you actually can paralyze them. So I think just becoming self-aware both about yourself, but also about the person across the table from you and really trying to be more adaptive is the key. Speaking of your Grand Rounds tomorrow, which we are all very excited about, um, your title is Would I Trust You to Be My Surgeon? And for our listeners who won't have the privilege of being there tomorrow, can you give us your, your key takeaway message from that? Sure. Um. <laughs> Not to give away your, your talk tomorrow, I promise I'll listen to it like it's the first time I've heard it. <laughs> So I think one of the really um, fun things for me that's really been a major pivot in my research has been um, really inspired by Ali Tenkate, who's a PhD educator in the Netherlands and Utrecht, who's really um, developed this um, assessment framework construct for competency-based education around something called trustable professional activities. And it really is hinges upon this idea that um, was brought to him actually by a nursing colleague uh, there at Utrecht who came to him and said, you know, we have these incredible residents who can, um, who are brilliant, who pass their tests with flying colors, they go to the Sim Center and they get checked off on all of these things that they're supposed to be able to do, but many of them are not able to put everything together in the applied setting and actually take care of the patient at the bedside, and she felt like there was this big gap she was seeing um, in day-to-day -day patient care. And so really it boiled down to um, this idea of um, entrustable professional activities. What, are, what is the core of the profession? What do, what do I expect every graduating general surgery resident to be able to do? And I think that's a major gap we have currently and why we see such heterogeneity in terms of our graduating residents is we haven't defined that core, we haven't defined that floor and I think the other thing that was really valuable 
um, the other thing that was really valuable about this, this conceptual framework was that it was anchored in trust. So it's very different when you give somebody an evaluation instrument with a Likert scale and you say, how is Vivian at systems-based practice? And I say, oh, she's awesome because I like Vivian, so she's a five. And nobody even knows what systems-based practice is, basically, and um, or you know, practice-based learning and improvement. And so we basically just rewrote our instruments and the competencies, but it didn't really reflect whether or not you could take care of a patient. So an EPA really says instead to a faculty member, would I trust Vivian to take care of a patient with pancreatic cancer? A, it's something I do every day. It's a culmination of all the competencies. It touches all of them. It doesn't try to dissect it out into the individual competencies. And it frames it in trust. So it's very different when you say to me, would I trust you to take care of my mother if she had pancreas cancer, right? Like that really is a huge frame shift in terms of me signing off on that versus if I'm just filling out an evaluation instrument that somehow doesn't feel like it has any, any real high stakes. So I can immediately sort of conceptualize, well, I trust her to, to um, uh, do the preoperative evaluation, interpret the, interpret the imaging, come up with the plan. Um, she, I don't yet trust her to be independent in the operating room. And then I trust her postoperatively to manage complications and um, that she would know when to call for help because one of the key underpinnings of EPAs is this um, knowing your limitations as well and being willing to call for help. Now we're going to pivot to some more general questions about being a surgeon. How do you cope with losing a patient or bad patient outcomes? It's a great question. We were just having this conversation yesterday because um, one of our transplant surgeons recently wrote a book um, called uh, When Death Becomes Life. And there's a whole, there's a lot of a thread through that book about sort of the challenge of the surgeon um, and how you handle um, bad outcomes and this idea that somehow it gets easier over time when it definitely doesn't. It's in some ways it almost gets harder over time because you feel like it shouldn't happen to you anymore somehow as you have more experience and I think that I had a terrible complication when I was a resident and I remember presenting at an M&M conference and my program director coming up afterwards and saying you know are you okay and I thought what a weird question you know why are you asking if I'm okay like ask if the patient's okay but it was really actually a great question because I think um, we all see surgeons who um, can't recover from that and I think it's one of the really difficult things we have to do with surgeons which is to recover and learn from the experience, take care of the patient, but then keep going. So I think that's a tough part of the business that we're in. As a female surgeon, have you ever experienced things that, um, or challenges, especially, you know, starting out or as you developed in your career and moved on up? So, you know, it's funny, I would have answered this question differently a couple years ago. Um, I feel very fortunate to have been very supported throughout my career, and I, I don't um, in any way at all discount the barriers that, that lots of um, people have experienced. They, I hadn't personally experienced them. I, um, I would say, though, it was interesting when we moved to Texas that for the first time, and it was I bumped into it more around patients, um, there was this bias that was that was palpable with respect to how women were expected to behave versus 
male physicians, I had many female patients, older female patients, who somehow felt that you were not as credible if you were a woman surgeon versus a male surgeon. And ironically, my male partners were the ones who would set them straight, but it was just mind-boggling to me because I, at that point, was quite senior. I was the chief of the division, and I was like shocked as to where this was coming from, but it was just a cultural um, thing. And even had an interaction, not within the Department of Surgery, but outside in our organization where a very senior female administrative leader who was really trying to support me, um, I think, um, said something to me to the effect of, you know, I was really surprised how much you spoke up in that meeting. And then that would have been okay. Maybe as a new person, maybe I was not listening as much as I needed to. But then she said, especially as a woman. And I was like, what does that mean? And it really, I carried it around with me for a long time and found myself sort of second guessing everything I said before I would speak in a meeting, which I never have worried about. Um, sometimes I should be quiet and listen more for sure, but, um, and then finally I just said, forget it, you know, this is, this is who I am. So surgery is obviously steeped in tradition, but especially in our training model, a lot of the so-called non-traditional surgeons, women, people of color, LGBTQ people, we still subscribe to that sense of tradition. So how do you see this paradigm evolving as we have more diversity in our field? And what traditions do you think we should keep? And which ones do you think we should leave in the history books? It's a great question. I honestly think the most important answer is we need to stop describing all the groups you just described as non-traditional. <laughs> I think that this idea that surgeons have to fit neatly into some specific box is, is probably the biggest problem yeah. of tradition. Yeah. So. I think, you know, I feel this way a little bit as a, you know, someone whose scholarly focus has been in education. You know, people say, you have, well, you've had a non-traditional academic path. I'm like, I'm, it doesn't really feel very non-traditional. I write grants, I publish, I have a pretty traditional, you know, CV, but because it was in education instead of basic science, somehow it's untraditional. So I think that part of it is just the language that we use and the narrative that we create mm -hmm. around yeah. what it means to be a surgeon. So on the subject of tradition and surgical education, Halstead was called at different points in his career both daring and safe. And your work on autonomy and surgery obviously has helped shape, I think, modern residency as we've experienced, experienced it from boot camps for the interns. We just talked about the competency metrics um, and then other quantifiable, qualitative, and um, other ways <coughs> to grant graduated autonomy. So all that said, do you think there's room for, a mod for modern surgical residents to be both safe and daring? Um, maybe I'll ask, what do you mean by daring? Mm. Um, well, on the one end of the spectrum, we had one of our residents give a talk at, I think it was Southeastern, about um, residents behaving badly mm -hmm. and kind of taking things into their own hands and having remarkable results that shaped the future of certain operations or even the field itself. Um, but I don't mean actually going that far and doing bad things to patients uh, or to themselves, but thinking in a daring way, thinking about problems that they can solve, even as residents, not just as a cog in the wheel to try to understand, you know, something other than check boxes. Yeah. 
So I think um, some of the work I'll talk about tomorrow in terms of the resident development aspect of our work, I think aligns with that really nicely. And one of the things that's been really fun to see is um, as we've rolled this out at the University of Michigan, really starting to see a shift in the conversation in the operating room with residents really offering um, up um, ideas and, and problem solving. And so one of the actual elements of OpTrust is you know, resident leadership and problem solving and, and proposing um, a different strategy. And I, one of the things that's really challenging to become a faculty member is you don't get to operate with other people anymore. It's really the only, the only way that you get exposed to new ideas is through the residents. So I frequently will ask the residents, well, how does so do this? I know many of my colleagues are not interested in hearing how so-and-so does things and <laughs> say, you're in my OR today and we will do it my way. Um, and that's certainly their prerogative, um, but I think ultimately to be better we all have to be open to new ideas. And so I think as a resident it is really almost more of training yourself not to be stuck in the check boxes and being rigid and recognizing that um, there are multiple ways to do things and that you're, you know, you're going to ultimately settle into your way as well, but it's, it's making sure that you don't get rigid and stuck and um, unwilling to think about things differently and problems differently. I think that surgeons are great innovators because they're able to um, take these challenges and then try to figure out a solution. It's kind of back to what's that problem you're trying to solve. Um, and I think residents really can be key to that. I think they have to feel invited to the table and, and welcome to the conversation. And so that's really, you know, that's my job as chair is making, creating that environment. Thank you so much for your time. We really enjoyed having you. Thank you for coming all this way. Thank you for having me. Thanks for tuning in to today's Wiser podcast. Hope you join us next time for another great interview. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Wiser Podcast, or send us an email at wiserpodcast at gmail.com to join our email newsletter list. Thanks for your support, and we hope to hear from you soon.